This class is part of the Lessons in Tanya project. More classes available at LessonsInTanya.com. Major funding for this Tanya class is provided by the Mettel Corporation. Additional funding is provided by Tanya students like you. Lessons in Tanya. The Tanya of Rabbi Schneir Zalman of Liadi. Taught by Rabbi Ben Zion Krasniansky. Tanya's text elucidated by Rabbi Yosef Weinberg. In the previous chapter, we learn that there's a very simple and straightforward way for a Jew to develop a love for Hashem is to, by realizing how Hashem cares about us and loves us. And therefore, when you realize that someone cares about you and loves you, you can't help but love them in return. It's like a mirror. Could the mirror help but reflect your face in return? It can't help it. It's just natural. So if someone loves you, that's the way the heart. The heart is like a mirror. It responds to another heart. If someone cares about you, you'll care about him. Very simple. Especially if they demonstrate that love and care. Especially if it's not your peer. Someone that's superior to you. Takes an interest in you. If an Einstein suddenly took an interest in you and cared about you and loved you and your heart would... You couldn't help but respond and reciprocate. And love him and care about him. So how much more so if Hashem, who is infinitely greater than us, and infinitely greater than the whole universe, and yet Hashem does not pay attention to the whole universe, who does Hashem choose to marry, and who does He care about, and who did He demonstrate His love for, to the Jewish people? He took us out of Egypt. When we reached the lowest point, the 49 gates of impurity, and then Hashem personally took us out of Egypt, from the dunghill, the lowest level and elevated us, brought us to the highest level at Mount Sinai, into his inmost chambers, where even his ministers are not allowed it. And he hugs us and he kisses us and he marries us. And he's intimate with us. So we can't help but love Hashem in return. But here in this chapter, Alter Rebbe is going to elaborate on this point because the question is, that it's true that Hashem took us out of Egypt, but this is an event that happened 3,321 years ago. This Pesach will be 3,322 years. So it's ancient history. Hashem took us out of Egypt. Yes, maybe He loved us then, back then. But how does that help me today? Where do I see today that Hashem loves me and cares about me? And this is what he's going to explain in this chapter, that the exodus from Egypt is ongoing. It's an ongoing exodus from Egypt, an ongoing redemption. And therefore the same love that Hashem demonstrated for us by personally taking us out of Egypt, so too each and every day Hashem personally takes us out of Egypt. That's what he's going to explain in this chapter. Chapter 46 began with the Alter Rebbe. Yet another simple and straightforward means by which every Jew can arrive at the great love of God, thereby enhancing his performance of Torah and mitzvot. 
This is done by utilizing the love which come into being as water mirrors the face to the face. For just as water reflects the image of a face peering into it, so too is uh, reflected the heart of man to man. The Alter Rebbe went on to explain that all the particulars mentioned in the parable of the mighty king and the rich commoner as enumerated there are infinitely more applicable with regard to the love showered by God upon each and every Jew. He showed us his great love when he himself descended to rake to take us out of the nethermost level in Egypt and led us into his innermost chamber by giving us the Torah and his word, whereby we are able to attach ourselves to him with the ultimate level of unity. Accordingly, the Atorebe can expound the word Kichan in, this, in the text of the benediction as implying betrothal, perfect union of man and wife. Kichanu also implies supernal holiness, which alludes to the supreme state of exalted separation which Jews attain through the performance of mitzvot, recalling God, holiness, his total exalted separation from all worlds. Chapter 47 will continue this theme and answer the following question as Rebbe Shmitar notes. How can the love reflected as water mirrors the face to the face be expected of us nowadays when God's love was, sh was shown to us thousands of years ago at the time of Exodus? The answer given by Alter Rabbi is not only is it reasonable to expect this love for Jew when he recalled the initial Exodus and the giving of the Torah, when God himself descended, thus showing his great love for us, but also, in truth, this is a present-day event as well, of Exodus is a daily occurrence. In every generation and every day, a person is obliged to regard himself as if he had that day come out of Egypt. This text is cited from the Mishnah Pesichim 10.5, except that the Alter Rebbe inserts the words, and every day. For the Exodus is not only an event which takes place in every generation, it is also a daily event in the spiritual life of the Jew. This is a quote from the Mishnah, the last tra chapter in the tractate Pesachim. And this we quote in the Haggadah, at the end of the first part of the Haggadah, that in every generation, meaning in every, every year on Pesach, and we celebrate the holiday of Pesach, Although there's a mitzvah to commemorate the exodus from Egypt, to verbally commemorate the exodus from Egypt, so the Mishnah says it's not enough to verbally commemorate the exodus from Egypt. You also have to view yourself as if you yourself left Egypt. You have to see yourself as if you yourself left Egypt. The Maimonides says to show that you yourself left Egypt. And that's the custom of the Sephardic Jews. At the Seder, they, they 
they take a stick and they put something in the back of it and they walk around the table. Yes. Like we are leaving Egypt. Yes. They reenact it. Yes. They, it's an experience. It's not just verbal, but they physically reenact the exodus from yes. Egypt. Yes. Because you have to experience it. Pesach is not just to commemorate a memory, verbal or in thought, but it also has to be an action. You have to relive it. You have to experience that's the ultimate way of fulfilling the mitzvah. Yes, you fulfill the mitzvah just by verbally remembering the exodus from Egypt. But the Mishnah is saying, ideally, the way to fulfill this obligation is by actually experiencing the exodus. And it's a personal experience, reliving it. I am now leaving the exodus, I'm now leaving Egypt. When you're sitting at the Seder, you have to experience, and every generation means every time you celebrate the holiday of Pesach, it's happening to me today. It's not an event, a historic event that happened 3,322 years ago, this coming Pesach. But it's actually, I'm experiencing it now. Now, the Mishnah talks about every generation, which means every generation, as you're celebrating the holiday of Pesach, you should re-experience and relive the Exodus from Egypt. And that's the ideal way to fulfill this mitzvah. The Alter Rebbe adds every single day. What's the source? For the Alter Rebbe, where did he get this? Every single day. Because we learned, the Mishnah says, that a person is obligated to remember the Exodus from Egypt every day. And in the morning and at night. So if you're obligated to remember the Exodus from Egypt each and every day, and there's a question that's asked, what's the obligation on a Jew to remember the Exodus from Egypt on Passover and Pesach? There's already an obligation to commemorate the Exodus from Egypt every day. So in the beginning of the Passover night, when you're in Shul, when you're in the synagogue, and you started, you say the prayers, and in the prayers you mention the Exodus from Egypt, I already fulfilled my obligation, just like I fulfilled it the night before and the night after, the night before that. What difference on Pesach, on the Seder night, What's the added obligation I've already fulfilled? Every night I'm obligated to remember the Exodus from Egypt. And there are different answers that are given. One of the answers is that every night it's enough just to commemorate very quickly, very briefly. On Pesach, the mitzvah is, the commandment is to elaborate, to really get into it. Not just to, to say, God took us out of Egypt. Next. The whole night we spend celebrating and remembering and reliving and the whole Exodus from Egypt. Now, of all the answers that are given to explain the difference between the obligation to remember the Exodus from Egypt each and every day in the morning and the evening versus the commandment to commemorate the Exodus from Egypt on the night of Pesach, he doesn't give, no one gives the answer that the difference is that every day the obligation is just to commemorate it verbally. But on the night of Pesach, as it says in the Mishnah, a person has to relive it and re-experience it and view yourself as if you yourself are now leaving Egypt. So that's the major distinction. No one explains that. No one gives that answer. So obviously we see from this that the obligation on every Jew to commemorate the Exodus from Egypt, and as the Mishnah says, it's not enough to commemorate it verbally, but to relive it and experience the Exodus from Egypt. This obligation this has, is obligation is in each and every day. Each and every day, we have to experience the exodus from Egypt. As if we are in today, leaving Egypt today. What does this mean? What do you mean we're leaving Egypt every day? And it's not enough to commemorate it verbally, but to actually 
feel it, experience it. To personally experience as if I am leaving Egypt. I'm living in the Upper East Side. What Egypt? <laughs> what, do you, what do you mean leaving Egypt? Every single day I'm leaving Egypt? What Egypt are we talking about? So obviously we're talking about a spiritual Egypt, a spiritual state of mind. Egypt comes from the word limitation. Limitation. So each and every day, our soul experiences the exile. Our soul is an exile. Our soul suffers from existential angst. Our soul is in pain. Because our soul's natural place is in heaven. In its heavenly abode, where godliness is transparent, an illuminated world. The soul is forced into this world. So the baby cries. The moment the baby is born, the baby would rather not be born. Why does it have to leave? Why does the soul have to leave the comforts of heaven and come into this dark, cold world? Impersonal, crass, coarse, egotistical world. For the soul, this is a traumatic descent, a plunge from the peak to the abyss. And each and every moment that the soul is in this world, the soul never gets used to it. The soul is in pain. We may dull that pain and we may not feel that pain. But it doesn't change the fact. Nevertheless, the reality is the soul is in pain. A tzaddik is someone who feels this pain all the time suffers from this existential angst, feels Egypt. The Jew is very much in touch with this pain. That's why Jews are so agitated all the time. That's why Jews practically invented psychology. <laughs> most psychologists are Jews and most of their patients are. <laughs> Jews are very agitated. You know, you have we, we have one word for snow. The Eskimos have 28 words for snow. There's snow and there's snow. Jews have 32 words for neurotic. <laughs> the Jew is so agitated. We don't even know why. Angry, agitated, creating revolutions. What's wrong? What's wrong with the status quo? Just live your life. Nine to five. Go enjoy life, barbecue, have a good time. No, there, there's, because this is the existential angst that we suffer from. Whether we know it or not, whether we're aware of it or not, the soul is in pain. This is the meaning of exile. This is the meaning of Egypt. The soul is in Egypt. The fact that we're in the body, the fact that the soul is in the body, in the human body, and the human ego, and the human natural soul, Natural self, which what, does, what motivates the ego, the natural self, 
What's its motivation in life? What's it, what does it live for? What's its raison d'etre? It wants to enjoy life. It just wants to have fun, wants to enjoy life. Whatever comes natural. Whatever feels good. And that's the whole life. That's its whole life, its whole motivation. For the godly soul, this is, this is, this is painful. This is, this is imprisonment. This is entrapment. It's torture. It's a concentration camp. Get me out of here. My godly soul, what's the motivation of the godly soul? It wants to touch the divine. It wants to connect with the divine. That's its whole being. That's its raison d'etre. Its whole being, its whole motivation is godliness. There is nothing else. There is no other reality. When a person lives a life, my whole life is about being natural and whatever feels comfortable, whatever feels good, whatever makes me happy, whatever. I mean, this is what life is all about. What life is all about is Hashem, godliness. This is what motivates the godly soul. This is what excites the godly soul. This is what it lives for. This is its only reality. There is no other reality. So to live life just for pleasure, indulgence. To the soul, this is so painful. And sometimes the soul screams so loud we don't even hear it. We numb out because it's too painful. That's why you end up with addictions. We end up, we completely numb out. You don't feel anything because the pain is too, it's too painful. It's so sensitive. The soul is so sensitive. And the soul can never get used to it. It's like taking the, the, the hand of a child and putting it into fire. You never get used to it. It's painful. Even if you're 80 years old and you've been sinning all your life, so the soul, the soul doesn't get used to it. For the soul is just as traumatic and just as painful. Maybe the pain is so deep that you don't even feel it anymore. Because you've numbed out. But the pain is there. The hole is there. The emptiness is there. The agitation is there. And when you don't hear anyone screaming, it's because they're screaming so loud that they don't even hear it anymore. But the shout is there. So for the soul, this is, every single day, the soul finds itself in exile in Egypt, in a very painful environment. In the body, in the ego, in the natural soul. How does the soul get out of Egypt? There's only one way to get out of Egypt. When you study Torah, and you do a mitzvah, when you touch the divine, every time you do a mitzvah, you're touching the divine. Every time you're studying Torah, you're being intimate with the divine. God is kissing us and He's hugging us. And we're being intimate with Hashem and becoming unified with Hashem. For the soul, this is the answer. This is the only answer. That's why the very beginning of the Ten Commandments starts out, I am God, your God, who took you out of Egypt. Why is God telling us suddenly, I took you out of Egypt? He's giving us the Ten Commandments. He doesn't say, I am God, your God, who created heaven and earth. Creation of heaven and earth is a much greater miracle, a much more astonishing miracle than the miracle, miraculous exodus from Egypt. So why doesn't God say, I am God, your God, you know, which God, I am the God who created heaven and earth. It's, it's, you think the splitting of the sea is a miracle, the fact that there's a cup of water is a greater miracle. But the Torah is telling us that it's talking about our personal Egypt. The Ten Commandments was given in the singular, not in the plural. God is speaking to each and every one of us. Every Jewish soul, every Jew stood at Sinai. And God is telling you, you are in Egypt. But I am going to take you out of Egypt. How do I take you out of Egypt? 
By giving you the mitzvah, by giving you the Torah. When you study Torah, when you do a mitzvah, you're taking the soul out of Egypt. You're releasing, you're redeeming the soul out of its existential angst. Now the soul comes alive. Oh, I'm doing something divine. I'm doing something godly. I'm occupied, I'm engaged in something godly. I am in heaven. This is my free pass out of the concentration camp. And this is the only thing that can justify that pain and suffering. Otherwise, all that pain and suffering is for nothing. Imagine the soul going through so much pain and suffering, and you don't do a mitzvah, and you don't study a word of Torah. You're allowing the soul to continue its pain and suffering. How can you justify the constant pain of the soul? 24-7, relentless, non-stop, doesn't get a breather for a moment. The only thing that can justify this pain and suffering is if you fulfill your purpose in life, if, if you fulfill your mission in life, your divine mission. And when you give your soul a breather, when it studies Torah and it does a mitzvah, now the soul is connected. As we learned earlier in the Tanya, the end of chapter 31, that's why the rabbis say in Ethics of Our Fathers refers to Teshuvah, and Maisim Toivim. One moment of teshuva, of return, of repentance, and good deeds in this world is worth more than the whole world to come. The language doesn't make any sense. It says teshuva, repentance, and then good deeds. Logically, first you should say good deeds. And if you don't do good deeds, then you can always do teshuva, you can always make up for it. Why does he start with teshuva before I even did any good deeds or didn't do any good deeds? I'm right away starting with teshuva. And then he says good deed. And he explains that teshuva, this is the motivation why I'm doing the good deeds. Teshuva means my soul should return back to its origin, where it came from. As King Solomon says, Aruach Tashuva Elohimash, and the son of the soul, the spirit goes back to where it came from, to Hashem. So the soul left its heavenly abode, its source the peak, and ended up in the abyss. So how do I return? What's my mission in life? What's a Jew's mission in life to return the soul back to heaven? How do I do that? How do I accomplish that? Through mitzvah, through maizim, through good deeds. Because when I do a mitzvah, I'm touching the divine, I'm returning the soul back to its heavenly palace. This is the reprieve. This is how the soul gets its reprieve of its suffering. This is how the soul... It reconnects. So this is the motivation. And this is the beginning of the Ten Commandments. Hashem says, every time you study Torah, every time you do a mitzvah, you're, do, you're accomplishing the exodus from Egypt. You're getting out of your own personal Egypt. You're soothing your soul. You're answering your soul's existential angst. You're addressing, directly addressing your soul's, your deepest self, deepest agony. Existential angst. Where every time the, the stole, every time you, you put on tefillin, every time you light a Shabbat candle, every time you give a penny to tzedakah, every time you do any mitzvah, every time you study Torah, you are addressing the deepest needs of your soul, urgent needs of your soul, because this is an urgent, actual experience and problem that the soul has this moment. The soul is in Egypt today, here, now, me. My soul is suffering this very moment. How do I address this? How do I help my soul? Now, when I study Torah, when I do a mitzvah, 
I am accomplishing, I am actually literally leaving my Egypt, my personal Egypt. This is the only thing that can soothe the soul in the deepest level. It's the only thing that can calm the soul down. So every day I'm experiencing the exodus from Egypt. It's not something in the past, something that happened thousands of years ago, 3,322 years ago to be precise. This is something that's happening to me now, here and now, actually, literally. I am leaving my personal Egypt, the deepest Egypt, the darkest Egypt. And even though I, I experienced the exodus from Egypt yesterday, it's not enough. Because today my soul is suffering again. Every moment that my soul is in this world, that my soul is in the body, that my soul is trapped in the physical, material, ego, conscious, the soul is in agony, the soul is in pain. So I ate yesterday, but today is a new day, I'm hungry again. It doesn't help me. It doesn't answer my hunger pangs of today. Yesterday I had a full meal, but today I'm hungry again. And if I don't feed and if I don't nourish myself, I will suffer from hunger pangs. The soul suffers from this angst constantly. So yesterday I left Egypt, but today I have to leave Egypt again. How? Through Torah and Mitzvah. And this is the divine kindness. This is the ultimate kindness. That Hashem, just like Hashem showed us kindness and His love for us and His attraction to us, the original Exodus, that He came down when we were in the 49 levels of impurity and He took us out, personally took us out of Egypt and redeemed us. So too now, each and every day, each and every one of us, individually, personally, when our soul is suffering this traumatic pain, angst, Hashem personally comes and takes us out of Egypt. How? Because Hashem invests Himself in the Torah and the mitzvah. That when you do a mitzvah, when you study Torah, Hashem says, you are taking me, you are connecting with me, you are touching me, you are touching my essence, like we learned in the last chapter. As with the blessing we say of each mitzvah, Kiddushanu, Hashem elevates us to His level of holiness, to His transcendent self, to His intimate self, to His personal self. Every time you study Torah, a five-year-old child studies Torah, any Jew studies Torah, any portion of Torah, any, anything that engages your mind, any time you do a mitzvah, you are touching the divine essence. And as we learned earlier, even when you're an animal, when a human being is summoned to the palace, innermost chamber, you feel trepidation, you have awareness, you respond appropriately. But imagine if you bring the goat into the king's chamber. <laughs> what does he know? King, chamber. He remains the same goat that he was before. So even when we're like the goat, when we're like the animal, we're with Hashem, we're doing his mitzvot, we're strapping up the tefillin, we're wearing his talus, we're studying his Torah, and we're like, we're like the animal in the, in, the, in the king's chamber. No response. Huh? What? King is here. I'm with the king. The king is hugging me and kissing me and being intimate with me and loves me and is attracted to me and wants to marry me. And there's no response. We do the mitzvah, cold-bloodedly, technically, mechanically, by rote. No response, no movement, no feeling, no inner, totally oblivious to what's going on. Nevertheless, Hashem loves us so much that even though we are with Hashem, 
We're in his innermost chamber. And we're like an animal, completely unaware, insensitive, completely oblivious to what's going on. No trepidation, no awe, no love, no stirring of the heart, no stirring of the soul. Blank. Empty. And yet, Hashem is still with us. 100%. Hashem still loves us. So even though we are like an equivalent to the 49 levels of impurity, we are so thick, we are so insensitive, we are so coarse and crass, we are completely insensitive. Not like the tzaddik, the soul of the tzaddik is jumping up and down, the soul of the tzaddik is, is thrilled, is excited, is on fire when he does a mitzvah. But we can do the mitzvah, and yet we don't feel the divine, we don't sense the divine, like the animal. And nevertheless, Hashem is still with us, 100%. Equally so when, as when the tzaddik does the mitzvah, as we learned in the last chapter. Hashem is completely with us, 100%. He's intimate with us, and He loves us, and He cares about us, even though we're in a state of an animal, completely oblivious and insensitive to what's going on. So when we see such a love of Hashem, that Hashem loves us so much, cares about us so much, brings it into his innermost chamber and is intimate with us. Despite the fact that we are so lowly and we're like the animal. And he takes us out of Egypt. This is personally takes us out of our existential angst, takes our soul out of its Egypt and allows us to be intimate with him. We can't help but reciprocate and love Hashem in return. Hashem cares about us so much. He loves us so much, so dearly. He cares about us so much. And look at the gap. We're like an animal. We're nothing. And yet he loves us. Then you can't help but love Hashem in return. Care about Hashem in return. If he cares about me, I care about it. There was once a, uh, one of the Rebbe's Shluchim in London told us once that he was traveling to, I forgot where he was traveling, to a conference. And he was on the train and he didn't put on, he didn't daven yet. This was in England in the 1960s. You know, it was unheard of. There was no shows in the train. He'll get to the city too late. So he thinks to himself, I'm going to start davening here. I mean, you know, middle of the train. You know, can you imagine in those years to get up, start putting on talus and fill in the middle of a train, you know, in England. This was, you know, but then he thought to himself, what have these people done for me? What has Hashem done for me? You know, so it was pretty easy. Once he put it into that perspective, it was a pretty easy choice. Hashem won out. So listen, so these people don't appreciate it, and they're freaking out, and they don't know what, what's going on. But what, does Hashem, what has Hashem done for me? So that's it. Hashem cares about me so much and loves me so much. Not just the uh, love that he demonstrated 3,322 years ago. Today, now, every time I'm putting on tefillin, it's the ultimate act of love that Hashem is showing me. He's, he's giving me, he's allowing me to touch the divine and to free my soul from it, to soothe my soul from its deepest pain and to redeem it and to reconnect it, to touch heaven, to touch the divine. So how can I help myself reciprocate and love Hashem and return and care about Hashem? And this is very simple and very straightforward and natural. Not just natural for the godly soul, even natural for, for my natural soul. If someone cares about me, I care about him in return. Period. If someone's attracted to me, I'm attracted to them. It's very, it's very simple. It's a two-way street. It's reciprocal. The heart is like a mirror. 
And that's if it's my peers. I imagine Hashem and us. And if anything, the gap has grown wider. Because in the olden days, people were holier, people were more sensitive, people were more in tune, people were more spiritual. Today, the world has become, we've become much more crass and coarse and egotistical and selfish, self-centered. We're like spiritual midgets. We're like the animal. We can be brought inside the palace, inside the innermost chamber, and we're like completely insensitive. We don't even appreciate the time that we live in. You know, there was a time until our generation, until the previous Lubavitcher Rebbe, including the previous Lubavitcher Rebbe, you weren't allowed in. When the Rebbe fabrained, only a select few were allowed in. The leaders of the community, the, the refined ones, the deep ones, the genuine ones, the sincere ones, it was a bit privileged to get in. If you were allowed in once, you weren't allowed in twice. You know, there, there was barriers. Every, anyone can go in. You have to be worthy of going into the palace. You can't just, you're not just allowed in. What are your credentials? What have you done to deserve to be allowed in? But with the Rebbe, in our generation, the Rebbe let everyone in. No barriers. No inhibitions. Everyone is allowed in. From the greatest to the worthless, to the simplest. Absolutely no barriers. Even when we don't even appreciate what's going on, we're led into the innermost chambers. And we're completely insensitive. The goat is inside the inner chambers, it doesn't feel anything. <laughs> and yet, we're inside the innermost chamber. Even when we remain the animal, completely insensitive, unappreciative. So when Hashem shows us such a love, if anything, that love today is much greater than any other time. Because the fact that we are so low, and the fact that we are the spiritual midgets, and yet Hashem shows us the same love that He showed to the previous generations of Jews, who were giants, spiritual giants, prophets, divine inspiration. And today we're not even like the donkey of Rabbi Pinchas ben Yair. And yet Hashem loves us. When we put on this tefillin, we achieve the exact same thing. We draw down Hashem's infinite light, His holiness, His essence is with us. Today, every Jew, the simplest Jew, just as the greatest rabbi, mystic, and scholar, such a love, such a, Hashem took us in and loves us and hugs us and kisses us and is intimate with us. How could we not reciprocate and love Hashem in return and care about Him in return? which infuses our Judaism with a life, with a passion, with a vitality, with a love, with a feeling, with an appreciation. This refers to the release of the divine soul from the confinement of the body, the serpent's skin. The body is a source of confinement for the divine soul since it derives its life force from Klippah. It is from this exile that the divine soul escapes. So the body is referred to in the Zohar as the serpent's skin, the original serpent. And not only does it cover up, conceals the godly soul, but it actually doesn't allow the godly soul to express itself. Because the, the serpent's skin the, is interested in materialism. It's not interested in holiness and the divine and godliness. It's interested in it's a natural soul. It just wants to do whatever feels natural, whatever feels good. It wants to have fun, whatever tastes good, whatever feels good. And that's what life is all about. 
for the, uh, for the body, for the natural soul, for the ego, for the ego consciousness. Uh, but f- uh, and for the soul, this is, this is exile. In order to be absorbed into the unity of the light of the blessed Ein Sof, by engaging in Torah and commandments in general, and in particular, through accepting the kingdom of heaven during the recital of the Shema, wherein the person explicitly accepts and draws upon himself Hashem's unity when he says, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. In general, how do we achieve this exodus from Egypt when we study Torah and we do mitzvahs? That's in general. And specifically, by verbally saying the Shema Yisrael and by accepting upon ourselves God's unity, that Hashem Elokeinu, Hashem Echad, by accepting upon ourselves God's unity and God's reality. That's how the soul achieves that unity. You know, like the Kotzke Rebbe says, where is God found? Wherever you let Him in. So it's by us accepting the unity of God, that God is one. And by each and every one of us individually accepting upon ourselves, God is one. That God is one even in relationship to me. That I give up my ego and I say God is one, that God, there is no other reality but God, and I'm including my own ego. That I don't let my ego get in the way because God is my God, and God is one, and He's my personal God. That's a tremendous unification of God's name that draws down Hashem's infinite light. Because you're acknowledging the truth that there's no other reality but God. And but you're acknowledging it personally individually, consciously, that my conscious self, my ego self, I am nullifying before God and I am accepting upon myself the yoke of heaven. I am giving myself over to God. God, I am yours. I am your servant. I am yours. I belong to you. This dedication to Hashem, this devotion to Hashem, this is, like we learned in chapter 42, this is the beginning of holiness. This is the, the, the contact of holiness. This is the, the cornerstone, the foundation. Without this, there is no holiness. Unless a person gives himself over to Hashem, Hashem, I am yours, and you're the king, and I am your faithful and loyal servant, and it's an honor and a privilege to be your servant. This general dedication to Hashem that God is one. God is one, not in heaven, over the angels, in Jerusalem. God is one over me, my little world, myself. I am ready to dedicate myself to Hashem and devote myself and to nullify and humble myself before Hashem. That I will listen and obey Hashem because Hashem is my king and my sovereign and He has a right to command me. That dedication, that draws down Hashem's light, Hashem's infinite light. Because you're unifying Hashem. You're saying the truth that there is no other reality but God. What do you mean there's no other reality? But there's me. And that's the only reality we're in control of. One thing to say Hashem is king over the other one. It's very nice of you. You appointed Hashem king over the next Jew. But how about is Hashem king over me? Uh, well, not really. That's what matters most. That's what counts. That's our personal exodus from Egypt. Is Hashem king over me? Is Hashem in charge over me? Is he controlled? Does he control me? What kind, is he really a king? Is, is it true that there's no other reality but God? There's no other reality but God, and God is king. That means he runs this world. Not only he created this world once upon a time, but he, can, he runs this world today. He's in charge. He's in control. He's the soul. Can you imagine a, a body rebelling against the soul? The soul wants to move the hand, and the body says, no. God is God, is God and God is in charge, and God is in control. And if God says, move, you move. And God says, put on fill, and you put on fill. 
And if he says, put on a talus, you put on a talus. If he says, don't work on Shabbos, you don't work on Shabbos. And if he says, give a tzedakah, you give tzedakah. So this is, this is the ultimate unification of Hashem. This gets very personal. I am personally delivering myself to Hashem. I'm, Hashem, you're in charge. And this is a general acceptance that has to precede the mitzvah. This is the contact. This is the foundation. Without this foundation, you're not even in first base. This is the ABC, the olive base of our connection to holiness, of my connection to Hashem, my personal connection to Hashem. And that's the exodus from Egypt. When you connect with holiness, when you make that contact, that's how your, your soul leaves its personal Egypt. It's no longer trapped. It's freed. It's connecting with the divine. It's going back to its origin, to its source. It's free. It's no longer in prison. So this is critical. This is crucial. That's why he says specifically by personally accepting upon yourself the sovereignty of Hashem. This is the foundation. Then comes the second uh, paragraph of the Shema, which is the acceptance of the mitzvot. Once you accept upon yourself the yoke of heaven, and you, you say, Hashem, you're in charge, and you unify Hashem, there is no other reality but Hashem, and that means including myself. My ego doesn't interfere, doesn't get in the way. I get my ego out of the way, and I connect with Hashem. Then you accept upon yourself the mitzvah. Then when you study Torah and you do mitzvah, your soul achieves a personal exodus. When your day is filled with Torah and mitzvah, every time you do a mitzvah, every time you study Torah, your soul is achieving a personal exodus. You're contacting, you're connecting with the essence of Hashem. You're touching the divine and being touched by the divine. It is previously been explained in chapter 46 that our God is understood in the same way that Hashem, as the Hashem of Abraham and so forth because he became nullified and absorbed into the unity of the light the blessed I itself. Avraham self-nullification and consequent union with God was so complete that Hashem is called the God of Abraham. Through the performance of the mitzvah, the same may be said of every Jew, so that Hashem might rightfully be called our God. So we say, Hashem Elokeinu, Shema Yisrael, Hashem Elokeinu. The emphasis is, God is my God. He becomes my personal God. Just like we say the God of Abraham. Why is it the God of Abraham? Because Abraham became completely nullified before God. He became a chariot before God. So he became one with God, inseparable from God. So too, when a Jew dedicates himself to Hashem, and then he accepts upon himself to study Torah and do the mitzvot, to fulfill Hashem's commandments, then God becomes your God. You become nullified and inseparable and unified within the unity, absolute unity of God. So God becomes my God, my personal God. Except that Abraham merited this union by reason of the works and his advancing in holiness from degree to degree until he uplifted himself to this great level of nullity and unification So the difference between us and Abraham is that Abraham achieved this on his own. That even though Hashem did not tell him, command him, but it says Abraham kept on going and traveling and getting closer to Hashem. So Abraham was unique because Abraham accomplished this on his own. His own effort went from strength to strength without any 
without any uh, going, going down, without any setbacks. So we, the way we grow, you know, two steps, uh, one step back and two steps forward. It's a dance. For us, it's a constant dance. One step, two steps back, <laughs> sometimes more, <laughs> and then hopefully one step forward. So it's a constant movement and back and forth, back and forth. Abraham kept on progressing, strength to strength. You know, version 1 and version 2 and version 3, Windows 10, Windows They kept on going from one, one to the other without any setbacks. Abraham, his whole life was a dynamic, vibrant, deepening his relationship with Hashem and growing in his connection with Hashem and growing even more nullified and even deeper in his awareness of Hashem, completely nullified before Hashem. And just like Hashem is infinite, so the levels of closeness to Hashem and how egoless you can become is also infinite levels. You can go from strength to strength, from one level to the next level, and you advance and keep on advancing. So this was Abraham. Abraham was Abraham. He was the patriarch. He was the founding, the founding father. So he had this, this powerful ability to connect with Hashem with his own strength. And he was connected 24-7. He was like a chariot, even when he slept, and even when he ate, and even when he went about his daily business. He was a constant a vehicle, and a chariot Hashem was completely egoless. He slept godliness, and he ate godliness, and everything about him was godly, 24-7. We, needless to say, are not exactly on that level. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Maybe, we're not even, maybe uh, one ten-thousandth of the level of what Abraham was. Let's not kid ourselves. On a conscious level, how often do we feel godly? How often do we feel egoless? How deep, how profound, how weird, how nullified are we? I mean, let's not kid ourselves. Let's be honest. There's no comparison. Not even the most pale reflection, a reflection, a reflection of what Abraham was. So Abraham, he's the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of uh, Yaakov. They were the patriarchs. And we are their children. What about the great sages? Okay, they are an example of all the great, like we learned in the beginning of Atania, the one or two in every generation. They're also on the same level. The Moses of every generation, yeah, yeah, yeah. the Rebbe, the Balsham, the, the Alter Rebbe. You know, you're talking about one or two in every generation. This is, this is a different, exactly. They are on a different level. You know, it's like the sun. You know, we may have a little tiny flashlight that you can barely see within the dark. And you're dealing with the sun. You know, how can you compare? The energy of the sun and the, the, illumination, the illumination and the power and the energy of the sun. You know, they say in seven minutes, the sun, there's enough ray, enough energy that the sun bombards this world. In, in a few minutes, more than all the energy that the entire world uses collectively in one year. There's more energy in one, a few minutes of the sun coming into this world. So, you know, you do, that's what you're dealing here, with sons. You're dealing with the, with the Abraham, Isaac. That's what the God of Abraham, the God, they were so godly. Their whole being was godly. How could you compare to us? Well, you know, we're hardly barely this, the, the weakest flashlight that's out there. You can barely see. 
<laughs> even in front of your nose with that flashlight, even in pitch black. So how could you compare? But he says, nevertheless, just like we say the God of Abraham, so too we say every Jew says, Elokeinu, God is my God. The God of Stephen Kaufman. Elokeinu, Shema Yisrael Hashem Elokeinu, God is my God. God is unified with me. How could you compare the two? How could you compare us to Abraham? Abraham was such a powerhouse on his own. Before the giving of the Torah, before Mount Sinai, before Revelation, he didn't have the Torah. On his own, he was able to achieve such a level of godliness, such a level of holiness, such a level of spirituality. Yes, it is an Abraham journey going on and on to the south. Abraham progressed from level to level until he attained the esoteric level of the south which alludes to the highest possible degree of love for God. Abraham then achieved his state as a result of his own labors. But as for us, the children of Abraham, for us it is a heritage and a gift, in that he has given us his Torah and has clothed in it his will and wisdom, which are united with his essence and being in perfect unity. So we, on the other hand, we can accomplish something that even Abraham cannot accomplish. As it says in the Song of Songs, King Solomon says that before the giving of the Torah, it was like an aroma. An aroma is not the thing itself, it's just an aroma, a smell, a scent, a scent of the thing itself. So all the patriarchs, the service of the patriarchs, they achieved, it was like an aroma, a scent of godliness. But after the giving of the Torah, when a Jew, the simplest Jew, the 12-year-old girl, the bas mitzvah girl, or the 13-year-old boy, my mitzvah boy, does a mitzvah, you don't only have a scent of holiness, but you actually have the essence of holiness. Where do we see this? Before the giving of the Torah, even the patriarchs, as great as they were, did not have the ability that the simplest Jew has today. They did not have the ability to take leather hide of an animal and to transform it into a holy object. They could not imbue that leather hide with holiness. They didn't have that power. It's not within the human capacity to take leather hide of an animal and to make it a holy. A Torah scroll, a mezuzah scroll, tefillin, they didn't have that ability. They were spiritual, they were godly, they were connected. They were the chariots. But nevertheless, they did not have that ability. Versus the simplest Jew today was empowered at Mount Sinai. Hashem empowered us and gave us the ability through the 613 mitzvah to take a, something physical, a physical object, and to transform it into something divine, into something holy. Not just symbolic. The physical mitzvah is not just symbolic. The mitzvah itself actually becomes a holy object. The Torah scroll becomes holy. The tefillin actually become holy. You're not allowed to take it in appropriate areas. You have to treat it. It's holy. You actually have the power to imbue it with the divine, with the godly. And also to imbue our souls, the one who's fulfilling the mitzvah. When we do a mitzvah, we're also imbuing our souls with the essence of Hashem. 
So in a way, this is the revolution of Mount Sinai. That we're able to accomplish something that even the patriarchs cannot accomplish. But nevertheless, we have to learn from the patriarchs. We are their children. Because you can't compare us to the patriarchs. The patriarchs were like sons. They were powerhouses. We are like midgets. So we have to learn from the patriarchs to try to refine ourselves. To try to internalize. The more refined we are, the more we can internalize that holiness. The more we can integrate that holiness. But that holiness we have notwithstanding whether we are refined or not refined. Because they only had the scent of Hashem, the scent. They couldn't bring down the essence of Hashem. Because we have the essence of Hashem, like we learned in the previous chapter, that in comparison to the essence of Hashem, the highest level is not a vessel, a vehicle, for God's transcendence, for God's holiness, for God's intimate self. And therefore, since the highest level is not a vessel or a vehicle, Therefore, even the lowest level, the, cr- the grossest and the crassest level, is not a contradiction. Because how do we connect with this level? It's not of our own doing. It's not because we are so refined that we draw down the level of God. We are human. We are finite. Even angels don't have this ability. The most we can draw down is a scent, which is not the thing itself, not the essence of godliness, of Hashem. We don't have that ability to draw down the essence of Hashem. It's only because Hashem revealed Himself. Hashem chose to reveal Himself, to invest Himself in the Torah. As the very first word of the Torah, the Ten Commandments, Anoichi, as the, as the Talmud says, is an acronym for Ano Nafshi Ksavis Yehavis. I, I, Ano Nafshi, my soul. Hashem is saying, I, my soul, Ksavis, I have written, Yehavis, I have given. When Hashem has given Himself into the Torah, So therefore, only Hashem could reveal His essence and choose to give us His essence. Since it's not something that we have earned or we have achieved, it's something that comes from above, it comes from Hashem, therefore, the greatest level that we can achieve is not more of a vehicle to it than the simplest level. And the simplest level is not a contradiction any any less than the highest level. And therefore, the simplest Jew by him physically performing the mitzvah, has the ability to draw down the essence of Hashem. By eating that kosher pastrami sandwich. What does a pastrami sandwich have to do with godliness? Everything. Everything. (laughs) What does meditation have to do with godliness? Just like meditation has nothing to do with godliness. You can meditate for a million years and you won't become one iota closer to God. The essence of God. You're only dealing with a, a glimmer of a ray of a God sent, not God's essence, which is completely inapproachable to us or to the highest, most angelic being who meditates for a million years, nonstop, 24-7, has no connection, doesn't get one iota closer to the essence of God. So just like meditation, has no connection to God. So the pastrami sandwich is not a contradiction to God. If God says, by eating kosher, you're connecting with me, then you connect to God. By eating a piece of matzah on Pesach, 
You're connecting with God. It's not a contradiction. That physical act of eating, that leather hide of the animal, that black strap from the animal I'm putting on my arm, I connect with God. Because God chose so, and God invested himself in the Torah and Mitzvah. So a level, when you're dealing with God's holiness, with the highest, most sublime level, is not a vessel, is not a vehicle, then even the crassest in the courses is not a contradiction. Because the connection doesn't come from us, it comes from God. So God can choose to Hashem the greatest, and the smallest is all the same. The most sublime, the most heavenly, the most supernal, and the physical, the most tangible, the most physical, is all the same. So God says, yes, you connect with me by putting on those leather straps, and by lighting the Shabbat candle. And by eating into that matzah, physically eating into that matzah. So the simplest Jew today, post Mount Sinai, was empowered, could connect with the essence of God. And could honestly and truthfully say, Elokeinu, God is my God. God is my personal God. Because God's holiness dwells in my soul. When I put on the tefillin, when I wear the talas, when I give a penny to tzedakah, when I light the candle, I'm studying Torah, God is in my soul. There's no contradiction. God's essence is in my soul. God's holiness is in my soul. I am in the innermost chamber, in the king's innermost chamber. I'm intimate with God. At this moment, I'm completely unified with God. So God is in my soul. Of course, we can't compare ourselves to the patriarchs. The patriarchs were were chariots 24-7 because they were constantly conscious of godliness. We are like the animal. We don't feel, we don't see, we're blind, deaf, and dumb. We don't hear, we don't see, we don't scent, we we don't feel. But it doesn't change reality. Our aspiration should be, we should be more like the patriarchs. We should refine ourselves. And that's the tzaddik. The tzaddik in our midst is one who is sensitive, who does feel, who has opened his heart and his mind, and does sense the divine, and internalizes the divine, and becomes unified with the the, the divine, also on a conscious level, experiences the divine. And that depends on your level of preparation. The more sincere you are, the greater the effort, the deeper you are, the, more, the greater the concentration, the greater the dedication, the more you can receive, you can openly receive and internalize and integrate and consciously become one with God. That's why God didn't give us the Torah right away. In order to give us the Torah, we had to have the patriarchs and the matriarchs. They paved the way. They paved the highway. They prepared us for the Torah. Because let's not be a fool. It's not enough just to physically do the mitzvah. We also have to be refined. We also have to be transformed by the mitzvah. We also have to be godly and more spiritual and more genuine and, and a little less egotistical, more egoless. And the more egoless we are, the closer, the more we can integrate and internalize godliness, and the closer we can feel towards Hashem. So this is an essential ingredient, as we learned earlier, and we're going to learn later on in this chapter, that your personal conscious state of being is very, is very an essential part of this whole thing. It's not enough to technically do the mitzvah, and the deed is done, and the connection is, is there whether I'm aware of it or not, whether I feel it or not, whether it doesn't know. We can't just be unfeeling and machine-like. We have to be like the patriarchs, refined, 
We have to discover God just like Abraham discovered God. It should be our own personal discovery, our own personal relationship with God. As if we're discovering God for the first time. It's a personal relationship. I'm not doing this for my parents. Abraham had no parents. Abraham was the first one. He had no community. He was all alone. Abraham and Sarah. And they discovered on their own. Every one of us has to be like Abraham and Sarah. We have to discover God on our own. As if it's my own personal discovery. I have to have my own personal relationship with God. My own individual relationship with God. And I have to grow in this relationship. And I have to deepen the relationship. So yes, the relationship is there. It's like marriage. It's a fact. But what you get out of the marriage, that's up to you. Some people get 1% out of their marriage. Some people get 5% out of their marriage. Lucky ones get 100%. It's all up to you. The relationship is there. The facts are there. The soul connection is there. Two half souls, you're married. But don't be a fool. What are you going to get out of it? Well, that depends on you. How much are you willing to put into it? How much are you willing to invest? No deposit, no return. You're ready to invest you're ready to then you will receive the rewards and you will receive the benefits and you will enjoy it and that's the model of the patriarchs you have to do something yes Torah is a gift it's an inheritance but doesn't mean I can remain unrefined and I can remain coarse and crass and remain the animal and be proud of the fact and be complacent and not do anything. Remember where the patriarchs came from. Your patriarchs, your father, your mother. They had to work on it on their own. They didn't have the giving of the Torah. They didn't have this, this, these riches. They had to do everything on their own. They had to discover it on their own. They had to work on it on their own. Their effort. Tremendous effort. Herculean effort. So, learn from the patriarchs. You have to invest. It has to be personal. You have to put in your own personal effort. And if you put in your own personal effort, the more you internalize it and you integrate it, the more you will gain, the more you will, you will achieve, you'll, uh, benefit from it, the richness. You will be enriched. And you will be rewarded. And then you'll appreciate. Then you'll have the best of both worlds. Because you have a level of godliness that Abraham could never possibly achieve because we're post-Mount Sinai. But then you'll also have the advantage of the patriarchs that you have achieved it, that you have accomplished it. Then you have the best of both worlds. They tell uh, the Alter Rebbe, the author of the Tanya, once called in his grandson, the Tzemach Tzedek, who he personally raised when his mother passed away young, sacrificed her life for the Alter Rebbe's sake for the sake of Hasidim, Hasidus. And um, the Alter Rebbe says, come to the mikveh with me and I'll give you a gift. You'll know the entire Torah. A gift. A miraculous type of knowledge. One you don't gain in schools. But in one instant you'll know the whole Torah. What would be your response? How quickly can we get there, right? <laughs> and Samuel Tzedek says, no. I'm not interested. I don't want this gift. Imagine. Why? 
It's because I want to have the advantage of earning my knowledge of Torah. Through my effort. I want to pay the price. I want to, I want to earn it. I want to work on it. I don't want a free gift. Like the patriarchs. The patriarchs accomplished everything on their own. They worked hard. They were given nothing. They were the pioneers. We, everything was given to us on a silver platter. They paved the highway for us already. We're just the children. They already paved the highway for us. We're just following in their footsteps. But they paved the highway. They were the first. There was nothing there. So the Tzimotzelik says, I want to accomplish that. Don't deprive me of that. Don't deprive me. I don't consider it a gift. I consider it a slap in the face. You want to deprive me of that feeling of accomplishment, of achievement, of effort, of personal investment. And It's not the end of the story. Tamil Tzedek, at the end of his life, said he regrets his decision. <laughs> he said, I should have taken my grandfather up on his offer. And he said, why? He says, because the Torah is infinite. So as much as I would have known the whole Torah, that would have just been the beginning. I could have, I still would, could spend my, the rest of my life with uh, you know, an effort and, and really extending myself but then I would have been exerting all that effort to achieve a higher level because I would have already known the basic, the Torah. But the Torah is infinite, so you can always go deeper and deeper. So this is what we have today. We have the best of both worlds. Everything is given to us in a silver platter. But on the other hand, if we exert ourselves today, and we extend ourselves, and commensurate to the level of our sincerity and our effort and our genuineness. And the more we try to deepen our relationship with Hashem on a conscious level and to connect, we're able to accomplish a lot more in the patriarchs because we're internalizing the essence of God. Because God has given us His very essence. And that's why every Jew can say, Elokeinu. When you accept God upon yourself, when you say Shema Yisrael, you close your eyes and you say Shema Yisrael, and you accept upon yourself God's sovereignty, and you're saying, God, you're in charge, and I'm giving myself over to you, and you're unifying God. There is no other reality but God, and that includes my little reality called my own ego. I'm also giving up my ego to you, and I belong to you, and I'm yours, and you're unifying God's, you're affirming God's reality. There is no other reality but God, and my ego will not interfere and is not in the way of God, because I belong to God, and I'm God's, uh, God is in charge. Then, God Elokeinu, the essence of God becomes my God. I become one with the absolute unity of God. And then I accept upon myself Torah and mitzvah, and every time I study Torah, every time I do a mitzvah, I am redeeming my soul from, the, from Egypt. It's my personal exodus. So this is something that's dynamic, it's ongoing. Every, the Mishnah says every single day I'm experiencing and reliving the exodus from Egypt. Every single day, it's a dynamic, ongoing, ongoing event it's, that I'm personally experiencing in the most personal way each and every day of my life. This is the story of my life. The Exodus from Egypt, this is the story of my life. Egypt is the story of my life. And the Exodus from Egypt, that's the story of my life. That's the drama of my life. This is the constant drama. To be continued. Anyone has questions? Comments? Uh, as an aside, who is Abraham's parents? 
Terach. Terach. He was not Jewish. They were not Jews. No, Abraham was the first Jew. Abraham and Sarah, the first Jews. They were revolutionaries. They were rebels. They were idolaters when they were young. Abraham was the first rebel, the first nonconformist. To be Jewish means to be a nonconformist. Not to be afraid to be different. That's why Jews are compared to fish. Right? How do you know the salmon is alive? Salmon goes against the current. Right. Well, oh, yeah, okay. Yeah. If it's flowing with the current, you know it's lax. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> so for a Jew, to be Jewish means to be a rebel, a nonconformist, to be spirited. Not to be different for the sake of being different. That, that's zealot. Different because you can't help it. No, to do the right thing, even if it means being different. I'm not, not for the sake of being different. Then you belong in a mental institution. You know, if everyone says it's dark and you say no, it's light because everyone said it's dark. If everyone's wearing blue and I'm going to wear purple, that doesn't make you into a rebel. A rebel means truth. I follow conscience, my conscience. I follow the truth, wherever it leads me. If I see something good, Jews adopted from every culture we interacted with, we adopted something. If we heard, if we heard some truth and we heard something good, we're not afraid to admit it and adopt it. But we follow the truth. Even if 99.9% of the world is against it. The whole world is on one side and Abraham was on the other side. Because I'm not going to compromise the truth because it's not popular. I follow an inner voice, an inner conscience. If it's the truth, if 2 plus 2 is 4 and the whole world says 2 plus 2 is 5, 2 plus 2 is 4. I don't care what the whole world says. Life is not about a popularity contest. It's about the truth. This is what Abraham started. To be Jewish means to be like Abraham. To be a little of a rebel, nonconformist, because you follow the truth. It's popular, it's not popular, it's appreciated, it's not appreciated. I don't live for the Joneses. It's not about conforming, it's about living a truth, a truthful life. And that's the greatest reward. That's the greatest freedom. That's the exodus from Egypt. The greatest freedom is leading a truthful life, being true to yourself, being true to your deepest self, your innermost self, liberating your innermost self. Being in touch with your deepest self, your soul, when your soul is happy, when your soul is soothed, its existential angst is addressed, and the soul feels released, is able to release itself from its prison, and the soul is able to contact the divine, connect with the divine, and you feel deep down, in the deepest level, you feel connected, and you feel whole. That is redemption. That is the biggest liberation. Liberation is not to be free to do whatever I please. I have my rights, and I can do whatever I want. That's not liberation. That's addiction. That's, that's slavery. That's slavery. That's slavery. Liberation means being true to your deepest self, your innermost self. That's freedom. To be able to be in touch with your deepest self and to connect with that deepest self and live, live, live a life that's consistent with your deepest self. That's the ultimate freedom. Every single day for the last 3,322 years, we've been leaving Egypt every single day. Because we're living a Jewish lifestyle. When a Jew lives a life of Torah and mitzvah, when you, in the morning you say the Shema Yisrael, and you say, Hashem, you're in charge, and you're in control, and I am yours, and my ego is not in, this will not interfere with your truth and your reality, and I give myself over to you. And I take upon myself to study Torah and do mitzvot, and I actually study the Torah and do the mitzvot. 
That is liberation. So we've been leaving Egypt every single day for the last 3,322 years. It's a dynamic, vibrant, ongoing exodus from Egypt. And the more we're in, t- in tune, the more we're in touch, the more we're connected with our innermost self, and we live out that life, a life that's consistent, where the external matches the internal, the internal matches the external, this is freedom. This is the personal excess. And it's the ultimate demonstration of Hashem's love for us. That He has enabled us to touch the divine. Where we are, at, every day of our lives. In the midst of our exile, He gives us the tools to redeem ourselves. And He invests Himself in the Torah and the mitzvah. And we become one with Hashem, so much so that we can honestly say, Elokeinu God, you're my God, my personal God. Our God. We become unified with Hashem. What a, what a gift. That's the ultimate act of love. Hashem dem- visibly demonstrates His love for us. He brings us into the innermost chamber of the palace. Despite where we're at, spiritual, we can be like the animal, insensitive, unaware, underwhelmed, and we don't appreciate what we're experiencing every time we do a mitzvah. To us, it may seem like a ritual, a custom, a burden. We don't even appreciate it. Instead of dancing from joy at the opportunity, we do a mitzvah, we say, Shechayonu, thank you, God, for giving us this opportunity. Instead, we may look at it as a burden, as a yoke. And despite all of that, and despite we are the spiritual midgets of all the Jewish generations, the least sensitive, and yet, Hashem is with us equally, just like Hashem was there, the generation that left Egypt. Hashem was there with the generation of the prophets, and Hashem was there, the generation of Rabbi Akiva, and Hashem was there, the generation of Hashem and Bayechoy, and Hashem was there, the generation of the Arizal, and Hashem was there, the generation of the Bashem to believe in another. Hashem is here today, now with us, here, in 2010, here. On the Upper East Side, every time we put on tefillin, Hashem's essence is with us, His holiness is with us. His very essence. Just like he was with Moshe Rabbeinu and Moses when he put on the tomb. That's, it. That's the ultimate act of love, the ultimate demonstrations of Hashem. Love for us, how he loves us and he cares about us. So how could we help but love Hashem in return and reciprocate? And love Hashem with all our heart and all our soul. And won't let anything get in the way of us for pursuing and fulfilling and studying Torah and doing the mitzvot. To be continued. This class is part of the Lessons in Tanya project. More classes available at LessonsInTanya.com.